Hey there, good morning, and welcome to The Story Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at The Story. I just want to welcome you and thank you for joining us, whether it's online or in person at one of our two campuses. It's really, it's really great to be together. And I know there's a lot going on in the world, and we all need this connection point, this touch point with God and each other. And so wherever you are on the faith or religion spectrum, whether you're a member of this church or any church, I just want to say hello, and I hope, uh, I hope you find The Story to be warm and welcoming this morning. We are starting a brand new and highly anticipated sermon series, the likes of which we've never done before. So we often do series of messages that are topical or based on a certain book of the Bible, but never before have we left the topics that we'll explore in a series up to you, the congregation. So y'all sent in all of your most challenging and sometimes hilarious questions about God and the Bible, et cetera. And we received so many of those and it was great. We've tried to distill some of those down and, and put them in survey form so that you could vote each week uh, through the story's website, thestory.church slash AMA. So for 24 hours a week, the poll opens and you get to vote on an upcoming sermon topic. So you decided in this week's survey, y'all decided what the question will be for next week's sermon. So next Sunday, we get to tackle the difficult subject of how do we know which biblical laws we still have to obey and which ones we can just do away with. That's going to be fun, I suppose, uh, to uh, figure out how to preach that topic. It's, it's new. It's going to be great. So uh, first, before we get there, we have today's question, which is even more challenging, if you can believe it or not. So today's question for part one of Ask Me Anything is, how is it possible for two equally committed Christians to read the same Bible and then come away with some very different conclusions about some big issues, some bigger important issues. So thank you to whoever sent that question in uh, from the bottom of this pastor's heart. It has been a week, thanks to you, trying to figure out how to preach this subject. Um, but there is a lot to say here because this is a complex question. It's not exactly what it seems to be on the surface. There's a lot of layers here. First of all, I think it's important to point out, we're talking about two equally committed Christians, right? So we're not talking about one Christian who's all in, 110%, reading his Bible every day, going to church every week, praying three times a day, and then some other guy whose wife drags him kicking and screaming to church twice a year on Christmas Eve and Easter, and, and he hates it. You know, both of those guys would probably check the same Christian box on the, on the census data, but, but those two are not equally committed Christians. So we're talking about two equally devoted believers, both going to the Bible and disagreeing about some big or important issues. That's the other side of it. We're talking about big and important issues, right? So we're not talking about what color the carpet is in the sanctuary church. We're not talking about whether it's okay for Christians to, to take the Enneagram. You know, we're not talking about any of those kinds of small things or inconsequential things. We're talking about some big, like, like, comprehensive, difficult cultural issues that drive people and families apart and friendships, you know, drives a wedge between us sometimes. It's, it's the issues like, you know, what does the Bible really say about women preaching in churches? What does the Bible really say about whether churches should baptize infants or, or just adult believers? 
or about whether churches should allow for, you know, same-sex weddings or any number of other, like, critical make-or-break issues that may come up. Those are the kinds of things we're talking about. And I think when you really get to the heart of this question and discover what the questioner is really getting at, I think what we're seeing in this question is an indictment, potentially an indictment on the Bible itself. Because... If the Bible really is the word of God, as Christians claim it is, if it's really this big, you know, perfect book, as we always lift it up to be, then shouldn't we expect it to be at least clear and coherent enough for Christians to agree about what's in it? Like, shouldn't we at least expect Christians to agree on the big issues, especially when they're equally committed to the the Bible's tenets and and what the Bible says. And and so, you know, shouldn't we expect that? And I think there's a fear there. There's an anxiety about what this question could mean if the indictment against the Bible was carried through. I think some of us have a fear that maybe the Bible is so fundamentally flawed as to be beyond repair somehow as to be irreconcilable with truth or, you know, impossible to make clear. I think that's the fear that underlies this kind of question or the suspicion that underlies the question, you know, why is it two equally committed believers can go to the same Bible and come away with these different conclusions? I think we're afraid that it's a flaw so fundamental as to be you know, beyond repair. And it reminds me of a, of a situation that I uh, that I encountered. Actually, I caused this situation <laughs> several years ago, back when uh, my wife, Giovanna, and I were living in Kansas City. We were working and doing some ministry in the Hispanic community of that city and trying to get to know our neighbors. And, and we had a lot of outreach going on. We had another pastor working with us. Her name was Pastora Susie, and uh, she was from Mexico and just a delightful young pastor. And and uh, she was helping shepherd this new community of Hispanic Christians in Kansas City. Well, one Christmas Eve, tragically, Susie found herself the victim of a really violent crime on her way out of church on Christmas Eve. As she got into her car, she was attacked at gunpoint by some thieves. And they wanted her purse. They wanted, they wanted her stuff. They wanted her car. Um, but she fought back. Um, and she wasn't having it. And so in the midst of that struggle, Susie got shot in the abdomen and had to go to the hospital. And she turned out fine. She recovered after several weeks in the hospital. But in the days following that incident, um, I ran into some of the congregants who knew Susie personally at a grocery store, at a local store, And in those days, I was trying to learn Spanish. I was barely conversational. I did my best. Uh, I've gotten a lot better ever since then. But then I was just getting by. And, uh, and, And the folks I ran into only spoke Spanish, right? So I was doing my best to explain to them what had happened to Pastora Susie. I said, first, did you hear what happened to La Pastora, to your pastor? And they said, no. And they got real, you know, real anxious. What, what happened to our pastor who we love? And I tried to explain to them that that Pastor Susie had been shot in the parking lot of the church. But for some reason, whoever came up with the Spanish language, they, they, they left a little bit of a, a loophole for, for barely conversational white guys like me. And there's only one letter difference between saying that she got 
shot in the parking lot and saying she got impregnated in the parking lot. <laughs> and I messed it up. I didn't, I didn't say it right. And instead of telling these church members that Pastor, uh, Pastora Susie had been shot in the parking lot, I said she had been impregnated in the church um, parking lot <laughs> on Christmas Eve. And their, their, their faces were just full of shock and awe, as you can imagine. And, and I remember them asking, well, by who? Like, who's the father, <laughs> right? But I thought they asked who shot Pastor Susie. So I said it was a couple of teenagers in the church parking lot that, uh, that got Pastor Susie pregnant. So they were just completely floored. They couldn't believe it. And uh, luckily, we were able to clean up that little rumor before Pastor Susie's uh, reputation was ruined. And uh, she healed up and got better. But it just goes to show you how much of a difference one letter can make. And I think we have that anxiety about the Bible. That maybe along the way, as it was passed down one generation to the other, one translation to the next, one version to the next, maybe there's just too many of those instances where one letter was off, one idea was wrong, one sentence was mistranslated, and now who knows what we have? Well, I got to be real with you. I'm as skeptical as, as anyone when it comes to matters like this. And, and I've done my own due diligence for many, many years with the Bible. I've gone back and forth with whether or not it's true and trustworthy and I'll be real and just tell you, I don't think that the translation or verification issues there may be with scripture are anywhere close to being consequential enough to raise problems related to today's question. I think there are issues that lead to us having a sense of ambiguity or lack of clarity where the Bible's concerned, but it's not so much about a letter that was missing or a word that was wrong. I think it really has more to do with, with three things I'd like to talk about real quick. So the first, uh, I think, issue that comes up that gives rise to mysteries in the Bible, when you're reading the Bible and you just your mind is blown. You can't make sense of it. The, the first issue, I think, is just generally confusion. And, and sometimes you're going to read the Bible and you're going to be confused, okay? Uh, and and this is, uh, I think this is really a result of, of mystery being a reality in Scripture and us just being uncomfortable with mystery, um, so we get really confused and anxious about what's, uh, what's in scripture when it doesn't make sense because we think the Bible should just make sense to us all the time. Okay. What throws us off is when we are, we are so uncomfortable with mystery that we allow a little bit of mystery to throw us into uh, a tailspin. And when you read the Bible, you see pretty quickly from Genesis 1 and 2, that God's comfort level with ambiguity is much higher than ours, okay? So when, when you read Genesis 1, you read the creation story, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, then you read Genesis 2, and it's the creation story again, but from a different perspective. So Genesis 1 is like the creation from, from heaven's perspective. Genesis 2 is the creation, but from earth's perspective. And there are differences, minor little differences in how the story's told, but th both of those stories end up in the word of God. Why? Because God can handle a little mystery. A little ambiguity doesn't scare God or make him nervous. And, and so I think it's important for us to, to, to acknowledge that we're more afraid of ambiguity than God is. When we face uh, confusion, 
or when we face the kind of mysteries in the Bible that we're talking about, um, we have to understand a few things. First, we're in good company. Don't be ashamed of ever being confused by the Bible. You know who else was confused by the Bible? The people in the Bible. Jesus' 12 disciples were always like, what? I don't get it. And then Jesus would say, well, come on, let's keep going. I'll explain. Luke chapter uh, 18 is a good example. Jesus had just preached a, a great sermon. All of his sermons were great, I assume. I'm so jealous. <laughs> and then it says in verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. They did not know what he was talking about. <laughs> and it wasn't because Jesus was being cagey or intentionally unclear. They were just lacking the understanding they needed. They were lacking wisdom. They weren't ready. But, and you're going to face times where you read the Bible and you're just not ready to receive what the Bible's given you. Don't get discouraged. Don't, don't you know, count that against the Bible. Keep walking. Keep walking with Jesus just like the disciples did. And he will explain over time and show you things you didn't know before. The second, I think, uh, aside from our own misunderstanding, the second thing that gives rise to these mysteries uh, that we encounter in scripture and the, the ambiguity we find there is our own sin. And this is hard to talk about, but look, we believe the Bible is the word of God. So there is a spiritual component to the, the book. It's not just words on a page. You know what I mean? It's not just, it's not just words that appear on, on pages. It's a spiritual a text and it's a spiritual event when you read it. So if that's the case, it would stand to reason that if there is sin in your life that is unresolved, undealt with, just sitting there, really driving your existence, then that sin is separating you from God. And our enemy, our spiritual enemy is going to use every opportunity to create more uh, dysfunction, more distrust, where the Bible is concerned. So you're going to be deceived by your enemy who doesn't want you to understand the Bible. And whenever you allow sin to continue unchecked, that deception only magnifies, right? Whenever you read the Bible. So, you know, I think, I think this is a really important thing for us to think about as uncomfortable as, as it might be that uh, this is really Satan's oldest trick. Since Genesis 3, what's he been saying? Did God really say, Eve, did God really say you can't have that fruit? And he's been saying the same thing to us ever since. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Raising questions again and again about the Bible. And sometimes we just have to decide whether we love our sin more than we love God. And whenever we're faced with something in scripture that contradicts some sin that we love, which is gonna happen, we're gonna have to make a decision. We, you will either, with your Bible in hand, you will either have to surrender your sin out of respect for scripture, or you will end up surrendering scripture out of respect for your sin. And those are the choices before us a lot of the time. But sometimes that sin will cause us to be more and more confused until we give it over to God. Third, and I think most interestingly, a, a real source of confusion and mystery when we read the Bible is what I call intentional paradox. Listen, sometimes the Bible is confusing on purpose. And it's not like God is being arrogant or just like that guy everybody knows who wants you to know how smart he is. God's not that guy at a party. Sometimes God is intentionally uh, amb ambiguous or paradoxical because God loves a good mystery because it brings deeper understanding about his kingdom. 
the ways of his kingdom don't always compute in our dimension and our limitations. There's things that he knows that we don't know. And so sometimes things that don't make sense are just things that are intentionally paradoxical. I'll give you a couple examples. So there's some just mundane ones, like in Ecclesiastes, the word of God says everything is meaningless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the word of God says everything is meaningful. And then you have other more, more really difficult paradoxes, like when the Bible says God is a God of wrath and he is angry at our sin. And then we also see that God is love in the Bible and God is willing to forgive all of our sins and love us unconditionally. And those two things don't seem to go together, do they? Well, think about Jesus and some of the paradoxical things he said, right? One minute he's telling people to let their light shine in front of all men so the world can see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Literally the next chapter, Jesus is saying, don't do any good works in front of the world to be seen by others. Check your heart. It's the same guy giving us two different messages. How can we resolve this sort of thing? And Jesus's greatest spoken paradox is in John chapter 9 where John, uh, Jesus says in John 9, 39, I came into the world for judgments. And then the same Jesus, three chapters later, chapter 12 says, I did not come into the world to judge the world. <laughs> How do we make sense of this? Is Jesus like, is he struggling with forgetfulness, schizophrenia? Like what kind of person says, I came to the world to judge the world, but I didn't come to the world to judge the world? Three chapters apart. Which is it? It's a paradox. And it's intentional. It's in the Bible for a reason. If the Bible writers wanted to weed out any times Jesus sounded inconsistent or crazy, they could have. But it's there because they understood that was his character. And this is a recurring theme in Bible. It's one of, the, one of my favorite things about the Bible is how the Bible presents this upside down world where up is down and weakness is strength and humility is power and wealth is poverty and poverty is a blessing and life is death, but death is life. You get all of these, these seeming paradoxes that somehow in the grand scheme of things come to make sense in scripture. So these mysteries, they abound. I don't think we should run from them. I think we should embrace them because they lead to deeper understanding. But what we need to know is that the Bible is only mysterious or, or, or ambiguous on the non-essentials of the Christian faith, on the non-essentials. On the essentials, the Bible is never lacking in clarity about what's essential for, let's say, salvation. So the second reason that two equally committed Christians can end up arguing about the Bible is because we often overemphasize our disagreements on the non-essentials. Almost all of our disagreements as Christians are on the non-essentials of faith. You know, um, virtually all Christians the world over in every time and place have all agreed on the fundamental essentials of Christianity. We end up arguing on things that are, that are non-essential. But by the essentials, I just mean the bottom line requisites for salvation and belonging in the church. So you've probably heard Christians say, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, ad nauseum, right? We always say, accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, all, all, all the time. And, and sometimes I think we, we say that phrase so much when the power is lost, but those powers, those, those words are so powerful, they matter so much 
Let me tell you why. In that phrase, Jesus, my Lord and Savior, we find the essentials spelled out. It's not a long list of Christian biblical essentials to be saved. And we know this because it's right there in Scripture. First of all, the Christian essential number one is faith in Jesus and his resurrection. We find this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. But what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this simply means believing that Jesus died for your sins and that he was raised three days later. And all Christians can rally around those essentials, or we should, at least. We believe that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead and there's not really an empty tomb somewhere in Galilee than, or in Judea, then, then we are not saved. That's fundamental Christianity. That's why believing in the actual empty tomb is essential. The second essential, and the only other essential, biblically speaking, is surrender to Jesus's lordship. All right? It's a big word. I'll explain. But Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord is a phrase that appears there in this passage. And it is probably the earliest Christian mantra in terms of historical evidence. Christians were saying Jesus is Lord days after he was resurrected and ascended to heaven. So what does this mean? Jesus is Lord. It's more than just a slogan or, or a t-shirt or a hat. To say Jesus is Lord is a, is a theological treatise. It is the world's shortest creed. It, there's a lot packed in here. Basically implied in this idea of lordship is that we choose to surrender our will and our ways to the will and ways of Jesus. And when there is a conflict between where we're at and who Jesus is, we trust his grace and we surrender to his grace to, to bridge the gap between us and him so that we can continue to get closer and closer to him. And, and this is, I think this is why it's so important to understand the essentials, because that's really all it takes to be saved and to belong with Jesus, to have faith in him and his resurrection and to and to proclaim with your mouth that he is the Lord of your life and believe it in your heart. To have a Lord is to have someone you trust, someone you obey. Now, everything besides that is non-essential, at least for salvation on a fundamental level. And, and that's where we find all the things that we argue about usually. And I don't wanna imply that the non-essential things are not important because they are. A lot of the things Christians argue about are incredibly important. And Jesus is always calling us to more holiness. He says in the gospel of Matthew, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's a high bar to set. What it means is we should always be growing in our understanding and our holiness, always becoming more like him by his grace. And so that means working through some of these, what we're calling non-essentials. But what has happened to many Christians is and many of us have, have been arguing about the non-essentials for so long that we've forgotten about the essentials. We spend so much time bickering, fighting in front of the whole world, by the way, showing the world how Christians can't ever get along because we're just fighting about these non-essential issues while never celebrating the essentials. 
the fact that somehow God has managed to galvanize cultures and people and civilizations from all over the world who speak all different languages, all skin colors, all civilizations coming together under these two essentials that Jesus is Lord and he's risen from the grave. Somehow we've lost sight of that because we keep fighting about the non-essentials. That's what happens. The longer you fight about the non-essentials, the more essential they begin to feel. So we make deal breakers out of issues that should not be deal breakers and, and equally committed Christians find themselves in dramatic disagreement. So uh, the, the, the first way that, that we find ourselves uh, feeling that the Bible is ambiguous is because uh, mystery about the Bible makes us uncomfortable. The, the second way is because we overestimate the importance of the non-essentials while underestimating the essentials. And third, and most importantly, we disregard what I'll call the master key. So you know how there, in, a, in any uh, old house or, or office building, some custodian or some person has the master key that unlocks all the doors. Jesus functions that way for scripture. And without Jesus, it's no surprise that the whole Bible is very confusing and seemingly worthless in some of our day-to-day lives. But with Jesus at the center, with Jesus as the lens through which we read the Bible, the whole Bible, all of its ambiguity, all of its lack of clarity, all of its paradox, it's unlocked. It's made clear. It, It makes sense. But only if we put Jesus First. Now, earlier in this message, I shared a few of the reasons why the Bible can seem so unclear and ambiguous. Um, and and we, we're genuinely confused. You know, we don't know. We just don't, we lack understanding. Or our sin gets in the way, or there's paradox that's intentional in the Bible, right? Jesus is the key that unlocks all three of those things. I mean, first of all, Jesus, <laughs> he knows we're confused. If anyone knows, it's Jesus. And when, he, when his disciples got confused, he didn't just discard them. They weren't just uh, fired for not understanding. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, here's my book, take it, read it. Once you understand every word of it, come follow me and we'll be good. No, no, no. Jesus says, here's my word. Here's my book, take it. And whenever there's something you don't understand, come follow me. We'll figure it out together. The longer you're with him, the more you love him, the more you love his word, the more you understand the Bible. He clears up our confusion. Secondly, Jesus deals with our sin. Now, uh, you know, this is something that he does unlike anyone else or any other God or, or worldview, because, you know, it should be abundantly clear to us that we're all sinners. We all mess up. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect. We all have some, you know, debt we've racked up by virtue of our sin. But Jesus offers us a way out of that pattern of sin and brokenness. He gives us forgiveness and he gives us freedom. And finally, Jesus unlocks the the secret code of the Bible. Jesus reveals the truth behind the mystery by, by satisfying scripture's paradox. Jesus satisfies Jesus, uh, Scripture's greatest, most confusing paradoxes. 
Earlier, I joked a little bit about that passage from John, right? John 9 and John 12, where Jesus said, I came to bring judgment to the world. And then later he said, I would never judge the world. I didn't come to judge the world. How do we make sense of this? Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can bridge that mysterious divide and crack that code that we can't understand. He came to judge every sinner for everything we've ever done wrong. He has found us guilty on all counts. We are all deserving of some sentence, some judgment. But when he, the righteous judge, handed down our judgment, when he, when he offered up our sentence, it wasn't our name that was written there, but his. And this is what sets Jesus apart. It wasn't me that was sentenced. It was him, even though I was found guilty. This is Colossians 2, verses 9 and 13 and 14. It says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's where your sin is. On the cross, its power is vanquished. Your sin is dead. And only Jesus, out of all the so-called gods and prophets of all the religions and worldviews in the world, only Jesus resolves the tension between a just God's righteous indignation toward our sin and a God who is unconditionally loving toward us. And he does that by judging us and sentencing himself. He judges the world, but we don't have to face the consequences of that judgment because he sentenced himself instead. Jesus cracks the code and solves the paradox between God's wrath and God's love. Now, I think part of my issue with this question this week as I wrestled with it was that it just seemed a little, a little cold, a little dry, a little academic. You know, how do you preach a, a sermon that reaches people on a heart level when this question just seems to be a head level question. But the more I sat with this question, how can two equally committed Christians read the same Bible and come away with different conclusions on these issues? The more I realized there's real heart there. Because I think the source of this question is really just a, 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 an ongoing concern of ours these days. Because we are all so tired, you know, just so tired of being lied to, so tired of feeling deceived. We are so tired of being divided as a culture. We're tired of seeing our country divided, our politics, our families, our churches, even our hearts are divided by this increasingly divisive world that we're living in. And there just doesn't seem to be anything solid on which we can stand. What do you hold on to in a world where everything's moving all the time? What can be trusted? And the fear, I think, in the questioner's heart 
whoever posed this question and the, the many of you who voted for this question, I think the underlying anxiety there is what if the Bible is just one more thing that promises big and delivers small? What if the Bible is just one more thing that we shouldn't really trust, even though we've been told to our whole lives? What if it's flawed or broken, or biased in some way beyond repair? Listen, I've been there. I understand the cry of your heart, if that's where you're at today, if that's what you're feeling right now. I'm not going to tell you that the Bible is, is without its issues sometimes. Obviously, the Bible is difficult to understand. That's abundantly clear. What I will tell you, though, is sometimes we make the mistake of trying to um, address the whole Bible's issues and the issues we have with the whole Bible instead of falling in love with Jesus first. Jesus is the key to unlock the word. And the more you love him, the more he reveals the truth of the rest of scripture to you. And if you struggle with some part of scripture or, you know, if there's something in there that you just don't agree with, or maybe, as I said before, maybe there's something you like to do that could be classified as sin that's, that the Bible speaks out against, I encourage you to be humble, to trust Jesus, not me, not religion, not what somebody else says about the Bible. Just trust Jesus, what he said about the Bible, what he says about you and what he did for you. And if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, died for your sins, rose from the dead, and if you proclaim him to be your Lord, the Lord of your life, that's the beginning of a journey that will lead you to deeper understanding about the rest of scripture. And he will meet you on that journey. He will not leave you confused and bewildered and searching for answers. He will show you the answers. He will lead you to the truth. He will give you solid ground on which to stand in this wild and chaotic world of ours. And you will at last have the confidence that you've always sought. It won't be confidence in yourself, but in Christ alone and in his word as he explains it to you throughout your journey of faith. I encourage you to really be humble and let Jesus show you not just how to read the Bible, but to show you how to let the Bible read you and how to let the Bible sift away the things in your life and your heart that need to go so that you can give God more of your heart, more of yourself. That's what he wants. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. And, and even if it's a struggle sometimes for some of us, uh, even if it seems uh, difficult to understand or paradoxical even, we thank you for its lasting beauty. We thank you for its truth that is uh, really everlasting and, and, and your character that shines through on its pages. We thank you for Jesus who unlocks all of the mysteries that have confounded us for a long time, some of us. We thank you, God, for being patient with us while we work through some of our confusion and some of our sin. And while we, uh, while we have been in some dark places in the past, right now, some of us, I pray, are making a decision to say yes to you and the path you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for your promises, for they are true. 
and they do come to pass. We thank you that even though you're angry and wrathful toward our sin, that's not where the story ends because you are also love. You are forgiving. You are patient. And we are yours today, Father. We declare it. You are the Lord of our lives, Jesus. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.